You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Morning, Anthem. Happy Father's Day. I don't know what any of you said. (laughs) I'll just assume it was reciprocity of some kind. Uh, that video is awesome, by the way. I love that. Uh, the handy work of, of Joe's in there doing the handy work. And then Toby, who's filming it. Uh, really appreciate the hard work they put into that. I, I love that. I love watching it. It makes me like want to, I don't know how to build anything, but it, that video makes me feel like maybe I could. <laughs> I watch it. I'm inspired. I'm like, I could make something. I don't know if it would be as sturdy as a, that, but it makes me want to build stuff because um, it's Father's Day and fathers build things. And uh, God has called men to build things, honestly. He really has. Like, we're meant to build things. We're meant to be the foundation on which things can be built. We're meant to be sturdy. That's why God made men. And so happy Father's Day, fathers, and future aspiring fathers, young men, single men, dating, engaged. This is a good day for you to to set your sights on fatherhood. We worship a God who identifies himself as father. And he looks down on his children, and he gives them good Things and he does not withhold any good thing from those who love him. And we are called men to pursue that image. That's who we're trying to be like. We're trying to be like God. We're trying to be a father like he is a father to us. And so it's good that we have a good father. And on this day, we celebrate that we have a good father in heaven. For those of you who maybe don't have a good dad, maybe your, your reflections is dad was not like God in many ways. I'm not like God in many ways. But my kids know that our hope is not in me. It's in a heavenly father. My kids know that they have two fathers, one who lives in the house with them, shares the last name, sometimes laughs and giggles and wrestlemanias on the floor with them, and one who's in heaven who provides them every good thing. And we look to him. When daddy fails, all of us, including their dad, look up and say, heavenly father, forgive us for our sins. Help us to be more like you in every way. Thank you for your provision of your son to forgive us for all that we've done wrong. Amen. So that's, what, that's, the, that's the, the, the tenor of our household. And um, it's fitting that I would be preaching today on Father's Day. Of course, yeah, sure, Luke and Stan aren't here, which helps, like somebody should preach. <laughs> uh, but it's also, it's like, well, it makes sense that Todd would preach. You know, like I would like to show you a picture of my family I have up on the screen there. So yeah, for those of you who don't know me, I have seven kids. <laughs> so it's like, well, who's more dad than anybody else here? Well, that guy. <laughs> that, who's responsible for more mouths to feed than him? Um, so those are my seven kids there. Juniper, the one in the middle, that's us in the hospital all coming and, and, and welcoming her with a, with a heart of hospitality into all those who would be known as Van Vorst. Uh, and so we welcome her. She just turned two months old yesterday. And so some people like look at that and they're like, that's crazy. How do you do it? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> But anybody who's ever babysat for us know that we have two rules. We have two rules in the Van Voorst house. Obey and have fun. And I will often punctuate it by saying, and I'm very serious about the have fun part. If I come back and find out that you didn't have fun, everybody's in big trouble. Because really obeying and having fun is what it's all about. Because if you don't obey, nobody has fun. And if you just aim at having fun but don't obey, then the babysitter will never want to show up ever again. And mom and dad will never get a date night. Obey and have fun. And so the second picture I have actually highlights that this is what we do. So, so it's like, obey, sit, sit still and take a nice picture, please. <laughs> Just take a nice picture. And then the reward will be have fun. Then we get to take the funny face pictures, right? So we, every picture that we have family pictures, there's usually like we try and incentivize the obey by just wait for it. If you can just hold the smile for a second, then we're going to do the crazy picture and have fun. So we live our life by that, obey and have fun, because honestly, that is what God's desire is for us, for all people. 
Obey and have fun. Obey and have fun. And we get this from the Bible, which I'll clearly show through our passage today, but G.K. Chesterton put this into really clear words when he summed it up this way. I have it on a slide for you. This is kind of the big idea of this morning in some ways. The chief aim of order is to give room for good things to run wild. God wants good things to have all the freedom that they have, to be as good and creative. He wants you to use your goodness to be creative and find new ways to bless your neighbors, to bless your dad on Father's Day, to bless your children, to bless your friends. He wants your goodness to just go crazy, have at it, be as good as you want. Just find, use all that creativity that he's put in you and explode it out in good things. God wants to give full room for that thing just to express itself. Far too often we use our creativity to get out of things and do evil things, right? We're like, well, I can, you can get really creative ways to get out of paying taxes. You can find really creative ways to not tell the truth to your friend. You can find really creative ways to do all kinds of wicked things. God wants us to use our creativity and all that goodness and just have at it. Just be good and go crazy with it. Be good and go crazy. That's what God's desire is for all of us as people, and especially for those who are going to lead things. And that's why on this Father's Day, it's fitting that we're in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We're going to be talking about specifically leadership at the church level, but this comes down to all kinds of leadership. For This is on an individual level. All of us need to be considering what he's talking about here because all of us should want to be like our leaders. Whoever you're following is who you're trying to be like, which is why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm following Christ. Be like me and you'll be more like Christ. That should be what we want to do as people. We should want to follow Jesus and then urge people to follow us in that way that we all follow Jesus together. So we're in Titus chapter 1. Let's start off with verse 5. So he kind of did the introduction last week. Stan mentioned that. And now he kind of gets into the meat of this letter here. And he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, When Paige and I were dating and engaged, we knew we wanted a big family. That was our goal. That was our plan. Um, And part of that plan was considering what that was going to look like. So Paige had never had a cavity in her entire life. And I had never had braces. So off to a good start. Paige had braces for eight years, and my mouth is mostly porcelain. (laughs) There's hardly a tooth left in it. (laughs) I think there's a single tooth in my mouth that is completely just tooth. There's gold. There's gold. I got all kinds of stuff. (laughs) There's all kinds of metals. It's like more like a a jewel or like a pawn shop in my mouth than it is like an actual human mouth. Um, So I actually told Paige, like, when I die, please, like, get some money out of this because I don't need it. (laughs) Um, So Paige and I knew that when we were talking about having a big family that we were basically going to be playing the dental lottery, right? (laughs) Like, we're just going to be playing the lottery. It could either be Eden mouth, like, it's going to be the best of both worlds, straight teeth that never get cavities, the best of both Paige and I, or it's going to be apocalypse mouth, (laughs) You know, like crooked teeth that rot out of your head. So far, we've discovered it's more on the end of Apocalypse (laughs) than it is on Eden. But by God's grace, he's given us braces and dentistry. Like, you know, people don't think the world's getting better in some ways. Just consider dentistry. (laughs) Like, dentistry has made the world a much better place. If you ever had a toothache, it is the worst. Right, Brock? You know. Yeah, Brock, thumbs up. Yeah, me and him were both in a connection group together. We both needed root canals <laughs> within the same, like, couple months of each other. And we can testify dentistry is great and helps with a great deal of pain. The reason why I bring up dentistry is this. When Paul tells Titus, I've left you there to put what remained into order. The word in Greek is literally, literally epi di ortho which makes perfect sense to you. Now you get it, right? 
But the, word, the root word of that is ortho, the same place we get orthodontics. It's put things in order. That's what he's telling him to do. The reason I left you there is because things need to be put in order. Right now, things are not in order, and it's limiting your ability to be free. God wants you to be free, and things aren't in order. And when they're not in order, it's hard to even, like, you're limited in your ability to actually be free and do all that God has called us to do. And so just like teeth that are out of order need braces, a church that is out of order needs elders. And for individuals, those of you whose lives feel out of order, you need God's order. You need to obey in order to have fun. You stop trying to have fun without obeying. It doesn't work. You've tried it a thousand times. It's fun for a little bit, and then it's not so much fun later. Obey and have fun. God has provided a way for you to have fun. He wants you to have fun. It comes by obeying and having order in your life. Uh, shout out Josh Miller. Uh, he pointed out a, a, a quote by a guy named Jocko Willink, who's like an ex-Navy SEAL guy who podcasts. He said, discipline equals freedom, which is essentially, there you go, <laughs> which is essentially what we're saying this morning. The chief aim of order is to give room for good things to run wild. Being disciplined, having things in order provides the opportunity to actually have fun and go crazy. And so this is how he's, the rest of this passage is going to say how to do that. So look at verses 6 through 7. So this is the list of what kind of person is qualified to lead the church at the local level. Above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So we see above reproach bookending this first qualification here, right? So what does above reproach mean? Does that mean that I have to be perfect in order to be an elder at this church? I hope not, because then I need to step down. I am not perfect. You want to know firsthand? Ask my family, which is why he goes to that. You want to find out a man's flaws? Look at his home. That's where they're on full display. It's where you live the majority of your life. But to be above reproach means that nothing sticks to you. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that when you have flaws, you repent of them. To be above reproach doesn't mean that you never do anything wrong. It means the minute you do something wrong or somebody comes to you and says, hey, you shouldn't have done that and it doesn't line up with what the Bible says to do, you repent. You have a routine of this. To be above reproach means that's your habit. You are, you are constantly repenting of things as they come up because for all of us, things are coming up. There's not a day that goes by that something doesn't come up that we could repent of and need Jesus for. We need Jesus every day, no matter how much we have things under order, how much in control we are. It's like showering. You need to shower regularly in order to stay clean. It builds up, right? If you go too long without showering, it's not just like I'm dirty. It's like I have a film on me. You, some of you laugh, you know. It's like you, got, you know that feeling like we've been out doing yard work and you have that, like, that sun feeling on your skin and you need to like, wash the sun off your skin? You, anybody else feel me on this? <laughs> like you can tell it, there's a difference between I've been out in the sun a long time and just like normal stuff. Like you got to like wash it off. Like you can feel it on you. And, and when you do that, your shower gets dirty. And your shower gets dirty because it gets you clean. And that's what we need to do as Christians. We need to come to Jesus. Because in order for me to get clean, something else has to get dirty. The dirt has to go somewhere. So to be above reproach means that you need to be clean, which if means you need to be clean, something else has to get dirty. And God has provided that in, the, in his son. His son takes on our sin and gets dirty, takes on the dirt on a regular basis as we turn to him, as we regularly repent and turn to Jesus. We find ourselves clean, and we need to be in the regular habit of acknowledging that we need Jesus. And without him, we just keep acquiring new dirt. That's why his mercies are new every morning. It turns out we need them every day. Every day we need God's mercy. And so to be above reproach means that you're just in the habit of turning to Jesus. 
every day, as you sin, as it comes up, you turn to Jesus. And, and the reason why he focuses on the home is because that's where dirt usually accumulates the most. That's where most of your dust is, is in your house, in the corners, is in your house, is where most of your dust is. And so in a parallel passage in 1 Timothy, where he's instructing uh, Timothy on how to raise up elders in his church, I have this on the slide for you. 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 through 5, he also talks about the home. He says it this way in 1 Timothy. Speaking of elders, he says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You cannot oversee in others what you overlook in yourself. You cannot oversee in other people what you overlook in yourself. And God's steward is put in charge of somebody else's house. As an elder of Anthem Church, I am in charge of somebody else's house. Anthem Church does not belong to me or Stan or Luke. It belongs to God. And this is somebody else's house. And so what God is saying is, if your house is out of order, why should I let you lead my church? Why should I let you lead my house? A man's qualifications for elders starts at home. You have to look at his marriage, and you have to look at his children. And that's why he says, the husband of one wife. Now, he's not just saying, you know, like, ideally, we'd like our elders not to have multiple wives. Like, that's obvious. <laughs> but he's not just, that's not like the bare minimum. It's like, well, if you guys want to be an elder, just make sure he doesn't have like more than one wife. Make sure he's not just disappointing just the one woman. <laughs> make sure he's not disappointing like a whole bunch of women because that'd be really bad. No, like what he's saying is, literally in the Greek, it's to be a one-woman man. And that, that's something that you can practice now, single guys. And that's something that you married men, some of you are like, well, I just have the one wife. Check. That's, there's a higher bar than that that he's setting for you. It's not just having just the one wife. It's being a one-woman man, which means you look at her. You look to her alone. Like in your, a lot of you in your marriage vows said, I give my eyes to you. And you should, and they're, because they belong to her. You're a one-woman man. You don't think about, what would it be like to be married to her? What would it be like to be with her? What would it be like? You don't do that because you're a one-woman man. To be a one-woman man means you are in the regular practice of being like, this is who I have chosen I've chosen who I love, and now my job is to love my choice. That's all I do. Everything that helps me love my choice, I do. Anything that would conflict with that has to go. If it, if it interferes with me loving my choice, I get rid of it because I am a one-woman man. And you single guys can practice that right now. You're like, well, I'm not married. I don't know what to do about that. How do you date? Do you date as though you're a one-woman man? Are you, out, are you clicking around on stuff on the Internet like all kinds of people? that you, You're just searching around? Or are you practicing being single or focused. When you're dating somebody, is it intentional? Is there a reason for it? Are you a one-woman man, or are you just kind of playing the field, seeing what works out, what doesn't? You can be a one-woman man even as a single man. You can have a heart that's oriented towards that. They're aiming towards that target. And we can, instead of practicing divorce, which is what most of our dating is, I want to learn how to get really close to somebody, learn about all the things they like, and then break up. And then go do that again. Let's start over with somebody else. Oh, what do you like? Oh, that's neat. Oh, fun times, fun times, happy times. Oh, now it's hard. Break up. New girl. Hey, fun times, happy times, good times. Break up. Everybody keeps living the best part of like, the, the relationship, and then they, they cut bait once it gets hard, and they're practicing divorce. You're just setting yourself up for divorce. That's what divorce is. You get really close to somebody, and then you decide, I'm over it. And so you move on. Are you practicing being a one-woman man? right now. Young ladies, are you practicing being a one-man woman? Is that your heart? Is that what you want? Then practice it now in how you act and how you talk and how you laugh with your friends about their jokes. Are their jokes like reinforcing an idea that we kind of figure it out and all men are kind of whatever? Or are we, 
we saying things that reinforce the fact that we are one singular focus, and that's what we're looking for. So he talks about marriage, and he talks about parenting. He talks about your kids. What shape are your kids in? Because they are a direct reflection of your leadership. As the man of the house, you are responsible for your children and how they turn out. That's why he points to that both in Titus and Timothy. Because honestly, it's not the church's job to raise your kids. Anthem Kids is awesome. I love it. But that's not their job to teach Lorelai about Jesus. If that's the first time she's hearing about Jesus, we have a problem. Right? And anybody working back there is doing their best to love those kids and to teach them about Jesus. That's awesome. That's what you should be doing. But the whole point of that is to help you, parent, hear this and go home and tell them that. You should be telling your kids what you're hearing right now. You should be passing along that. And especially you dads, you are a pastor. If you don't want to be a pastor, don't get married. You are the pastor of your house. So maybe that's news to you this morning. And if so, good news, you're a pastor. You just got promoted. <laughs> Bad news, oh, no, I haven't been pastoring very well. That's fine. Repent. We see, see section one, above reproach. Repent. Make more, make more intentionality, starting right now, being like, I didn't realize I was a pastor. I haven't been taking that seriously enough. My kids are grown. I missed that window. You're still their dad, and you always will be. You always will be. You are their dad. You are their mom. You always will be. It's never too late to repent and say, I was wrong. I should have been doing this. I'm going to do that. It's never too late to look forward, young man or young woman, to your future and be like, I'm going to do that now. I'm going to practice by discipling young people, getting involved in high school ministry. I'm going to see what it's like to lead people and see what it's like because I want to do that someday because that's going to be my responsibility. If your heart is, I want to be a wife, I want to be a husband, I want to have kids, your heart is a pastor's heart. So what are you going to just figure it out on the fly? 18 years into it, you figure out all the things you did wrong, but it's too late because they're gone. Start practicing now. Set your heart on that now. And so speaking of single people, single people often have lists of musts and must-nots, right? It's not a bad thing to have a list, like you must, like must be a Christian. That's a great one to have on there. Like, I hope you have that on your list, young, young Christians. Sing, Christian is number one. I'm just going to set that one for you. That's your list. After that, feel free to fill it in with whatever you want. But Christian has to be number one. But it turns out God has lists too. He has, he has must-nots and must-lists when he's thinking about um, leadership and people that he would trust to lead his church. So look at verse 7. He's going to start off with a list of five must-nots. So these are the five. He starts off with the don'ts. It cannot be like this. First one, must not be arrogant. Must not be arrogant. A person who's going to lead cannot be arrogant. And the word arrogant literally refers to like self-satisfied. Like you have to have a standard outside of yourself. You can't just be the person who's like, well, I'm meeting all my own criteria. I'm all fives. I give myself a raise every year. I'm doing great. You have to have a standard outside yourself. You need to, you need to think of like a junior high boy and his standard for how much Axe body spray is enough. <laughs> right? That kid needs an outside standard. Because you've met that kid, and he doesn't know when enough is enough. He's like, double pits to chest, right? And, like, like, and then like, well, maybe another one. I don't know. Maybe like my bottom of my shoes. I, I mean, I don't know where they're putting all this Axe body spray, but when they walk by, it's like Pigpen from Peanuts walks by, and there's just a cloud of Axe body spray that follows them everywhere. This kid needs a standard outside himself. He needs somebody to be like, hey, hey, why don't we ease up on the ex-body spray there, pal? <laughs> We're good. <laughs> I get it. You're a Mustang, whatever. <laughs> like, I get it. You're a wolf thorn. Okay. <laughs> Let's pull it back. <laughs> like, the, the man of God who's going to lead has to have a standard outside himself because that kid thinks he smells great, but he doesn't. He, he smells like too much. It's like, we all get it. You didn't have time to shower. <laughs> 
So like, you need a standard outside of yourself if you're going to lead. You, and that standard is God's word. We have to appeal to something outside of ourselves because it's God's church, not ours. And so God gets to tell me what to do. Just because I'm the head of my family doesn't mean that they, I'm not the buck stops with me guy. Jesus is. And so if I'm doing something that's out of line with what Jesus says, guess what my family gets to do? They get to say, hey, Dad, doesn't Jesus say this? And then as a leader who is not arrogant, you say, you're right. Jesus does say that. I'm sorry. God, help me to do better. Holy Spirit, let's pray that God gives you a better daddy and helps you be a better dad. That's what we're aiming at. Second thing he says, must not be quick-tempered. You cannot be quick-tempered if you're going to be in leadership. There's too many opportunities. There's too many opportunities to fly off the handle. If you have a low threshold and a short fuse, like, you know, we're coming up on 4th of July, you know these little firecrackers that, like, like go, <laughs> you know, like they, they, the, the ones that like blow up like within seconds. And you're like, these things are really actually dangerous. <laughs> like they have no ability to like chuck them or anything. Like it's like they blow up the second you put it on there. That's what he's saying. You can't be like that. You can't be like a firework that's just like, boom. Like you can't explode like that because when you're in leadership, you are exposed to all kinds of things that are going to ruffle your feathers. You're going to be held up to flames and there's going to be flames thrown into your world because of the fact, simply because you're leading. You're going to deal with all kinds of opportunities to fly off the handle. You're going to be exposed to all kinds of fires that some of you may never know. But the leadership has to deal with. And if you are quick to lose your temper, you will explode all the time. You have to have a long fuse. You have to be like God, who is slow to anger, who's slow to anger. So you can't have a short fuse like a firework because there's just too many opportunities. When you try and lead something, some of you have lots of opinions about things. And that's great. Lead something and then watch for a second. Like, lead something and then watch how some of those opportunities, like, oh, when people have those opinions about what I should be doing, it's an opportunity <laughs> to become frustrated or to be short, you know, to have people undercutting you or to always questioning your authority or your decisions. Try leading something. Gain some perspective that it's really difficult sometimes and leaders are trying by God's grace to do their best and they cannot be quick-tempered because there's just too many opportunities to fly off the handle. Must not be a drunkard. So he's not saying that a pastor has to be a teetotaler, which is an old-fashioned word for somebody who doesn't drink. He's not saying that. He's saying don't be a drunkard. Don't be somebody who drinks to excess. Now, some of you have grown up, and the only thing you don't like about Jesus is that he drank wine. Like, that's your only problem you have with him. And let me articulate that that is a problem that you have, not a problem that Jesus has. (laughs) Some people came and said, like, oh, Jesus is a drunkard, and people accused him of all kinds of things. And he made lots of wine at a wedding, and... uh, So Jesus was okay with alcohol. There's a room for it. You read scripture. There's a place for alcohol in the world. You don't have to partake of it. He's not saying that if you're a pastor or a leader, you have to engage in alcohol. But if you do, you cannot be a drunkard. You cannot. It's just unacceptable. You cannot be a drunkard. You can't be so impulsive that you don't know when to say when. You can't ruin good things. Like you have to have order. And that's why, back to our initial point, the chief aim of order is to let good things run wild. If you don't have order, you will ruin good things. Like, there's no reason to have a third glass of wine. Like, at what point, what are you trying to accomplish at that point? <laughs> like, maybe, oh, you're like, well, maybe I've built up a strong tolerance and I'm really good. I can hold my liquor. That's not to your credit. What, you have a gold medal in drinking games? Like, I mean, but that's like where, what this comes to is like we, like we applaud men who can like hold their liquor because like they've achieved it through all the trial and turmoil that it takes to have that kind of constitution. It's like, I can drink a half thing of whiskey and be fine. It's like, that's not great. <laughs> you shouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> like, why were you practicing so hard? You must not be a drunkard. And this doesn't apply just to alcohol. You can't ruin stuff. Like some of you ruin Netflix because you can't just watch one. You're like one season maybe. You can't do that. You ruin stuff. 
Facebook, social media is the same way. You're like, well, I'm just going to see what so-and-so's up to. And all of a sudden, like, the whole day is gone. You're like, oh, wow, I can't believe I spent all my day on Pinterest. Or shopping. Like, you can't just go buy the thing you went to look for. It has to be like a whole excursion. You can't, like, just appreciate good things for what they are and let them be. You ruin stuff by needing it to be something it could never be. You can't check yourself. You have to have self-control. If you're going to be in leadership, you have to have self-control. And this clearly is articulated and comes out in the form of like how you deal with alcohol because it's a very common place where people just lose control. But do you have control? Can you appreciate good things and just let them be? Can you do that? Must not be violent. You cannot be a bully and be in leadership. There's just too many opportunities to flex. Like you just can't be a bully. You can't, like, because might does not make right. We're Christians. Because what happens when my kids grow up and they're stronger than me? Are they right now? (laughs) Do I get to tell them what to do because I'm bigger or stronger? No, but I mean, it helps. (laughs) Right? But I leverage that for good. I'm like, hey, I'm bigger and stronger than you, so I'm going to enforce God's rules. Not because I'm bigger or stronger, but I'm going to use my strength and my bigness to point you to Jesus. If you have strength, if you have privilege, if you have something, use it to point people to Jesus. He's not saying you have to rob yourself of your own strengths or your own positions that you have. Utilize them and employ them and point people to Jesus. Don't just flex out of that thing and take confidence and like, well, worst case scenario, I'm stronger than you. So if we disagree on what we're watching on Netflix tonight, I have the remote and I pay the bills. So go to your room or watch my show. Like you can't be a bully. You need to be more like, like what the Bible would say is meekness which we have a misunderstanding of that. You hear meek and you immediately imagine like me laying in the fetal position on the ground and be like, oh, how meek is Todd? <laughs> how meek is he? He's like, oh, you could just like melt him. <laughs> you say one little negative thing, he's just going to shrink in front of us. Oh, he's so meek. That's the wrong idea of meekness. Like meekness is literally strength under control. Like a war horse is meek. Because you know how strong a horse is? Like we were just at the Vaughn's house the other day and like just standing next to horses makes me a little nervous because <laughs> I'm like, that thing could end me. Like, and there's no reasoning with it. It doesn't speak English. If I'm like, hey, I didn't mean to take your oats. It's like, well, too bad. It's game over for Todd because I got a hoof to the face. <laughs> like, like, horses are strong. They are so strong. And a war horse was strong and it was trained to run into battle without fear. It was trained to run because that's what the guy with the heels was telling it to do. But yet that horse is so meek that the second he pulls up on the reins, it stops. Why? Because the guy riding on his back is so much stronger than him? No, because it's meek. It's under control. This is what we need to aim at. Strength under control. Too often, our solution to this is to be weak. Then we can't cause problems. Like, so so I, instead of being a war horse who's under control, we're like turned into a puddle, and that way I can't cause any damage. I wasn't gonna, I'm always just in the no position because I can't say yes to anything. I'm just a puddle on the floor. No, you need to be strong and under control, like a war horse who knows when God says charge, you charge. You need to be so strong that you're ready to do that and so meek that when he says stop on a dime, you stop because you are under control. So be as strong as you possibly can and be completely under God's control. That is what God wants for his people and that's what he wants especially for those who are in leadership. And he ends his must not list by saying you must not be greedy for gain. You must not be greedy for gain. Now, I personally am exempt from this. You'll be nice to know because I am not paid to do this. I do this for free. So if you don't like it, you get your money's worth. You're like, I don't like that Todd guy. It's free, you know, <laughs> just giving this stuff away. Um, so I'm personally exempt from it because I'm a lay elder. And I would actually encourage many of you to pursue the route that I am, not because I'm something special, but because the church needs more men who lead and do it because they want to and not because they get paid to. 
Too many of you would only do vocational ministry if it was got a paycheck associated with it. Too many of you was like, well, if I was paid to be a pastor, then I'd lead my kids. Like, we, you're going to start doing it for free at some point because I guess those kids are not going to start paying you an income and tithing to you. If they do tithe, they should tithe to their church and their local leaders. But those who are in leadership, and God does say that those who make their living by the gospel have every right to earn their living by it. I have the right to get paid for what I do. I choose to work at shelter so that I can do this for free because I want to set an example for that. And I want people to aspire to this, to lead as much as you possibly can without having to get paid to do it. Not because getting paid is wrong, but because I think people need to see that. My mom needs to see that. My mom needs to see like, oh, Todd, you really read your Bible a lot and you really love your kids. You should be a pastor. And I think that's a natural outpouring of like, oh, you're interested in spiritual things. Maybe you should pursue them. But why is the only category for that is that you should get paid to do it? The only category we have is if you're serious about ministry, then you should do it for a job. We need more people who are pursuing it because they want to and aren't doing it for money. Now, those who are getting paid to do it rightfully and who are owed a paycheck, like Stan and Luke and Christina, they're owed a paycheck for the work that they do. They need to be careful that they're not motivated by the money of it because if the money is the thing motivating it, guess what money can get you to do? Just about anything. Just about anything can, money can persuade a person to do. And if you're somewhat tempted to do that, if the money starts drying up, does that change what you do? Or if you have convictions, but your paycheck requires you to do this, and your convictions start to come out of alignment, you're like, well, I can't say I believe that, because then I'm going to not have any money, and I have a wife and kids. Are you going to put yourself in a position where the money is now driving your convictions? You're reading your Bible, and you're like, I don't think we should be doing that, but I don't want to say anything, because I've got to pay for this mortgage. I don't want to lose my job. People in ministry are particularly vulnerable to this and need to be careful that it doesn't become about the money, because that can drive oh, the church didn't like my sermon. Maybe I should change that because I don't want to lose my job. What well, was the sermon what God wanted you to say? That's the, that's the criteria, not, oh, they might fire me and I might lose my, my, my money. We need to be leading out of what God says to do, not for just the paycheck. But let me again be clear, those who work in the line of ministry deserve to be paid for what they do. It's hard hard work, and they devote their entire lives to it. So this is a weird list when you look at it of like must-nots. It's like, so what you're saying is maybe don't let angry, arrogant, violent, greedy, drunk people lead the church? <laughs> Did we need to d- clarify that? <laughs> like, who are these people in Crete who need this kind of list? It's like, oh, it's like when I, I went to a, a, a hotel once, and there was a sign that, like, that said, no horses in the pool. Like, somebody put a horse in this pool one time. (laughs) There's no reason for that sign to exist. (laughs) Unless somebody did it, and they're like, we should put up a sign, because somebody's going to be like, you didn't say I couldn't. (laughs) So I think Paul here is just being explicitly clear. It's like, should it be obvious that we don't let drunk bullies lead the church? Yeah, but just so we're all clear, I'm just going to say it anyways, (laughs) just so we know. I just want to have it down here. And now he has seven musts. Seven musts that you must be if you want to be in leadership. And, and again, on an individual level, these are what you should be aspiring to be. This isn't just for leaders. Like, you'll notice these lists aren't like super Christian things. Like, well, these are things like apostles and elders do, but like Joe Blow is excused from that. These are all just normal Christian things. It's just the elders required to do all of them at the same time. And it should be the standard of like, they are further along. They are trying their best and they have actually, by God's grace, achieved a certain level that they can, in Paulinian words, say, Follow me as I follow Christ, and we'll all be more like Jesus together. That should be our goal, not just for leaders, but for people following leaders. So this is on a, on a personal level what you should be aspiring to. Look at this list of seven musts. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, 
upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Must be hospitable. It's literally the word of xenophilia, the love of strangers. So some of you think you're hospitable because you have your friend over for lunch after church. That's not hospitality, biblically speaking. Hospitality is having a stranger over, the love of strangers. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to find the strangest person in the foyer today and have them over for dinner. It's like, you're not only somebody I don't know, but you're really weird. Like, it's not saying that you're in love with the strangest things about people, but it's saying you are a lover of strangers. I don't know you. Come on in. Welcome. And I think, like, for the most part, Anthem is a welcoming church. Like, we love having strangers. We love having visitors. If you are new, welcome. We are glad you're here. You are welcome. We do all this for you. Don't feel any pressure whatsoever to put any money in that box on the way out. Please do not. You are our guest. You are here to enjoy, to partake, to hear God's word, to partake of communion, to to hear what God's all about. And if at some point you join this family, then by all means, pitch in, clear the dishes, pay the bills. But for now, if you're just visiting, you are our guest. Welcome. We love that you're here. We love strangers. We love having people into our home because the heart of a, a leader has to be, and maybe you've experienced this in a connection group, we're all, just, we're all just gelling so well together. It's such a great group. But Tammy has a friend who wants to come. Oh, is she going to ruin it? Is she going to ruin this chemistry we have? Oh, we were having, we've had a, such a good year. And we're having so much fun. I don't want to invite them in. What happens to the group? What if we get too big and we have to split? That's what he's talking about. Do you want your church to be like, I want to protect this little thing, and I need to protect it. And I don't want to invite anybody in because if they do, they're going to ruin it. If you are a leader, if you are a leader of your house, you can't have that mentality. You can't be like, well, I don't want to have a seventh kid. What if they ruin all the good things we have? You have to have a heart that welcomes people into your family. You have to have an individual heart of, I want to welcome people into my life as a person. I need to be hospitable. I have a welcome mat in front of me. You're welcome. I want you in my life. As a church, we need to have that. We need to welcome people in and not be so protective of, well, what if it ruins everything by inviting people in? We need to be, like, we always imagine ourselves as like a circle of people holding hands and facing in. And that's a huddle. And that's great. Huddles are great. There's a place for them in between plays. But then you all in, blood on three, one, two, blood, and we go out. And then we fight, and we, and we actually turn around, and we hold, hold hands facing outwards. We're all still connected. We're still a circle. You get the benefits of being a family. We're all still holding hands. I have that connection. But we're a circle facing out, saying, come on in. Join the circle. This is awesome. Don't you want to be a part of what we have? That's the heart of what the church should be, welcoming people in, not just hunker down and keep everything out because you might ruin everything. Second thing, must be a lover of good. You need to know what God calls good. And, and that means you need to love things that God says are good, even when it hurts to love them. Some things that God says are good will be hard for you to embrace. But if God says it's good, you need to love that, not just what you've determined is best for yourself. You need to have what God says is the standard for goodness is what you pursue and what you love. And you set your heart on loving that. Same thing goes back to what we said about husbands and wives. You make your choice and then you love your choice. You choose what you love and then you love your choice. Same thing here. You say, God says it's good, so I'm going to orient everything around loving that. God says it's good, so I'm going to pursue it. And that's what I choose. I choose what I love and I love my choice and I pursue it. Three, four, five, and six, I'm going to put all under one head because he says must be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He's all talking about you have to be self-governing. God has given all kinds of levels of leadership of governship. It starts with the individual, families, church, civil magistrate. God's 
given certain levels of governance. And on the self level, you have to be self-governing. He's provided leadership at all those levels. There's a house, and there's a structure that's organized. There's a church, and there's a civil magistrate, or the, what we call government. But everybody has government, and you need to start at the foundation. You need to be self-governing. Do you govern yourself? Because if you can't, you'll never be trusted to govern other people. Like, is it enough that the Holy Spirit is your governor and tells you what you can and can't do? Are you self-controlled? Are you governed? Because you can't control other things until you are yourself under control. In order to be in control, you have to be under control. And so he gives three examples of being upright, holy, and disciplined. Upright is being internally consistent. Like this guitar, like I could tune it. I could tune the strings to be in tune with each other so that they all make the same. Like when I do this, it makes the E chord. When I do this, it makes the C chord. I can do that, and I can tune that. Is it internally consistent? Like do you follow your own standards? Like do you follow your own rules? Are you internally consistent? Romans 14 says, happy is he who has no reason to condemn himself for that which he approves. Like, do you sleep well at night because you're following your own rules? Let alone the rules that God has for you or other people do. You have to start with yourself. Do you actually follow the rules that you say are important? You say family's important. Is it important? Or do you just say that and spend most of your time at work? Like, are you internally consistent? And then he says, holy, which is externally consistent. Are you consistent to what God says you should be doing? Like, you have to be in, you have to have integrity, you have to do what you say you do. You can't be a hypocrite. But then outside of that, is your integrity in line with what God says is integrous? So that would be like tuning this to E. Like that's a whole different standard, right? Like I can tune the strings to be in line with each other, and I have no idea what, 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 what scale it's in, but they would be, it would make the chord. Now to put this in E requires an outside standard. I have to know what E is and then apply the top string to it, and then everything else falls in line. That's being holy. Are you aligned externally to what God actually says you should be doing? And then disciplined is daily. Like this is a daily exercise. You need to be doing this over and over and daily committing yourself to it. You cannot take a moral holiday and remain moral. A moral person would never take a moral holiday. A moral person would never take the weekend off from being moral just to blow off some steam. That's not a moral thing to do. An integrous person would never take a more, an integrity holiday, a gentleman's intermission. They would never do that because a gentleman would never take an intermission. He would stay committed to his wife. It's not a thing that we do. It's not a thing a gentleman does. It's not a thing somebody with integrity does. You can't take a break from it. It's daily. It's discipline. And that's why the man of God and any of us are called to live daily in that. And then the last must, he says, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. We need to have a firm grasp on what God has handed down. You are in a relay race, and you have received a baton. Your job is to keep that same baton pure and then pass it on to the next person. That's why we talk about being a disciple who makes disciples. You need to pass on what you received, which is the word, the trustworthy doctrine that he's going to go into more detail in the rest of the letter about. We have to be disciples that have a good grip on the baton we have in order to pass it along so that they receive the same thing that we had and do everything we can to, to pass that same thing on. Again, back to the big idea. We'll finish up this, like, this way. Chesterton said, the chief aim of order is to give room for good things to run wild. God's desire for your life is to have all kinds of fun. Some of you, that might be brand new information, and that's really good news. God wants you to have fun and run wild. But to do that, you have to put yourself in order. And God has provided the order. He's told you the marching orders. And the more you do that, you will find freedom. You will find that you're free. 
You can actually do things that, in, that delight God and give joy to yourself. And you will not find that these fences are these burdensome things. You'll find that they're actually enjoyable. God put Adam in a garden. And you remember what he surrounded him with? A world full of yes. Yes, as far as your eye could see. That tree? Sure. That tree? Uh-huh. That tree? Go get him, tiger. That tree? No. One no in a world full of yes. One no in a world full of yes. Anywhere in the world was yes. You understand the world that God gave Adam. One no. But we just can't get our mind off of that one no. Like, oh, why not that tree, though? It looks so good. It Does it look that good, or is it just the one no? Why are we playing around the fence all the time, thinking that freedom is outside of that fence? When in reality, there's a huge pasture to play in, and you could do anything you wanted in there. You could wrestle, you could play frisbee, you could do that hammock thing, whatever, that looks fun, I don't know. <laughs> like, but have fun, like anything in here, go have fun. Obey and have fun, that's where fun is. And as we close here, we're gonna, we're gonna, we always respond to God's word with taking communion. I have a verse here, John 10, verse 9, that shows that this is what Jesus had in mind as well. In John 10, verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. A door, a door implies a fence. If there's just a door in the middle of a field, it's worthless. You just walk around it. You don't need a door if there's nothing else. The kingdom of God is like a city, and Jesus is the door. And there is one door into that city, and it is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes through me comes to the Father. No one else comes to the Father but through this door, this very narrow way. And when you enter this narrow door, this very narrow Jesus door, when you open it, what you find is pasture and freedom. And yes, it's fenced, but it's fenced to protect you. It's fenced because you have all the freedom. Anything inside those walls, have at it. Your father wants you to have fun. It's a world full of yes that he invites you into. Have fun. Obey. Stay within the rails. A train never has more fun than when it's on the rails. <laughs> you imagine a train being like, oh, the fun looks like it's over there. Uh, jumps the rails and like, oh, I'm stuck in the mud. That wasn't as fun as I thought. A train stuck in the mud it has no fun. A train that's on the rails is free to go wherever it wants, wherever the rails will take them. If you follow Christ and enter in through the one door, you will find freedom and pasture and fun. God wants you to have fun and delight in the freedoms he's given you. And they're found in the parameters that Jesus provided by his life and his death. And when we come to communion, that's what we celebrate. So as the band comes up and plays, we will celebrate communion. As you make your way to the table, you will take a piece off of the one loaf of bread and dip it into the one cup, which is Jesus's life and death for us to provide a door that did not exist. There was no way in. There was a, there was a, there was a still, there's still a pasture. There's still freedom. But you remember when Adam and Eve left the garden, the doors were locked. You couldn't get back into that place anymore. There's no way back into that place of freedom and relationship with God. And so Jesus came to die to provide a door that through him we could enter again into that freedom, a world full of yes. Christian, hear me saying, God wants you to have fun. Use the goodness and the Holy Spirit and all that creativity that he has given you and go out and be awesome. Have fun. Love people. Be spontaneous. Live out of the Spirit. Read his word. Know what good is. And then do that. And do a lot of it. Do tons of it. Have fun. So this morning when you come, come to the table with a heart saying, Jesus, you are the door. I confess this morning that you are the only way 
And if I've been trying to have fun outside of this, I confess and repent this morning. If you do that, you are allowed to come to this table. Come confessing it, saying, you are the one way. It's one way. It's order. And in that order, I find freedom upon freedom, joy upon joy. And that's what I want in my life. I want the freedom that you provide instead of the slavery I keep trying to find outside of these walls. I keep looking for freedom somewhere else, and it's enslaving. But freedom is through this one door. And when we come to these tables this morning, come confessing that and walk away forgiven. Walk away forgiven by what he did on that cross for you. And then have fun. For the love of God, have fun. Quite literally, for the love of God, go have fun. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the clarity it provides. We thank you for the chance to lead things and the, the high pressure that that puts on those of us who aspire to leadership, that it is a high calling and it is a humbling calling. When we consider what all the things you call us to do, it is no short list. It is not something accomplished just by grit and determination. It requires your Holy Spirit and your help. Without you, we cannot do what we've been asked to do. Your laws seem oppressive and hard when we consider doing it on our own. When we consider everything that we must do and what you require of us, it's a weight that we cannot bear and it causes us to wonder, could we ever be back with you? Could we ever satisfy you or make you happy? Are you that dad who always says an A, why not an A plus? Is that you, God? And as we read your word, we find that you are not that God. You are a God who has provided everything that you have required. You have given your son so that we might be forgiven, that you would look down and that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. When you look down on those who are in Christ this morning, those who come to these tables and receive your son, you look down and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Go have fun and enter into the joy of your master. God is a joyful God who loves to laugh and have fun. And he's a God of order, not chaos. Fun is found through order and obeying allows us to have fun. God, give us hearts that want to obey. Give us your Holy Spirit to help us do that so that we might have fun and bring much glory to your name as we do so cheerfully, joyfully as Christians with hearts full of thank you as we come to this table this morning. In your name we pray, amen.